0: Father, this morning we come before you thankful again for the opportunity to study your word and for the clear revelation of events that will transpire uh, that have direct bearing on our lives in these last days. I ask that you will open our hearts and minds to accept this message and to appropriately apply so that we can have the heart conversion we need to be ready for you to come. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is what we're going to do today. Last week, we ran out of time, so I'm going to try to tie up a, a few loose ends at the end of chapter 12, and you will see how it actually has an impact on Revelation chapter 13. Okay, so let's get back to Revelation chapter 12, and we'll move into chapter 13 once we get done here. So Revelation 12, we're looking at verse 17. This is uh, just tying up loose end from last week, so I'll go through it. Uh, I'll read it. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So I want to focus specifically on the idea of they keep the commandments, And they have the testimony of Jesus. So let's look in Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse 10. Revelation 19, verse 10 defines for us what the testimony of Jesus is. And I fell at his feet to worship him. This is an angel that John has fallen down to worship. And the angel said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant... And of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So, the remnant of her seed in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, number one, they have the commandments, they have the law. And number two, they have the prophets. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And if you look in Revelation 22, Similar picture results, I am of your fellow servants, thy brethren, the prophets. So the spirit prophecy is one of the identifying characteristics of this remnant movement or group of people. But there's more to it than that, okay? So let's keep your finger there in Revelation 12 uh, and, and 13. We'll be running around a few other verses before we come back here. Let's look in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17 and 18. Okay. It says, Think not, Jesus speaking here, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Often we use this verse to say, see, last time I checked, the heaven and the earth has not passed away. Therefore, the law is still standing. And that's correct. That is a valid uh, application of this text. But I want to couple this verse with another passage, okay? It's in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. 10 and I guess we'll read from verse 10 to verse 12. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. In short, this verse is describing the second coming of our Lord. Heaven and earth will one day pass away. And according to Matthew 5, verse 17, there's only one condition, there is one condition under which heaven and earth can pass. And that is until the law and the prophets have been fulfilled. All right? And here we see in Revelation 12, verse 17, a remnant group of people, and looking at the history, since we've already discussed Revelation 1 through 12, throughout history, that has been the struggle, isn't it? The struggle has been who truly has an undiluted understanding of the law and the prophets. Through the dark ages, that was part of the problem. That's why there was hidden manna given to the church in the wilderness. That is why there was a a reformation to bring a, a lot of these truths back to light. But what does it mean then? What does it mean then to fulfill the law and the prophets? Okay, that's the next question. Let's look in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 beginning in verse 1. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 1, it says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshipers once purged should have had no conscience of sins. Putting it this way, all throughout history, actually up to the crucifixion of Christ, the Jewish system of sacrifices was a way to demonstrate the fulfillment of the law. The law required that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And as the guilty sinner comes to the sanctuary and kills the lamb, it says here, those sacrifices could not make them perfect. And there's a reason why. Because the condition upon which a person's sins are truly, fully forgiven and justified, according to verse 2, that they should have no more conscience of it. If you are truly forgiven of your sins, your sins, if I can use the word, I'm throwing it out there, if your sins have been blotted out, then you should not remember your sins. So we can put it this way. The law or the requirements of the law cannot be fulfilled or we know that it is fulfilled when the justified sinner no longer remembers their sin. Does that make sense? So what is the fulfillment of the law? We know that Jesus came to fulfill the law and he did. Without Christ, there is no remission of sin. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the true sacrifice. The the lambs, they were just a shadow of things to come. So let's look in chapter 10 and verse 12. Chapter 10, verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And we know this is talking about Jesus Christ. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, footstool, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he has said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. Verse 17, this is key. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Jesus Christ says, I am the propitiation, I am the provision, I am the blood, I provided the blood to cover and forgive and to blot out your sins. But that's not the end of his covenant. He says, and I will put my law in your hearts and in your minds. And then, and then he says, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, simple question, is it possible for us to know anything that God does not know? Is it possible for us to know something that God does not know? So let me put it this this way. If Jesus says he will remember our sins and iniquities no more, do you think we'll remember them? We better not. Because all of a sudden, we then, if that is the case, we have been put in a position where we know more than God and especially in a case where we are remembering the sins of our past, then that means God has not fulfilled his promise of casting your sins into the depths of the sea. As far as the east is to the west, so shall I remove your sins from thee. And so the fulfillment of the law is, yes, number one, the sins are blotted out. Forgiveness by the grace and merit of Jesus Christ, yes. But more than that, by Jesus Christ's empower empowerment, the law and is written in our hearts and in our minds. And if if, if someone can point to me where your heart or where your mind is, where is it? If uh, can, can I say that it's right here? And interestingly enough in chapter 13 of Revelation there's a mark that is supposed to go in the right hand or in the forehead oh maybe that's why the mark of the beast is so important because the mark of the beast is a stamp to prevent the law from being fulfilled the law being fulfilled is the law in our hearts and minds our sins being blotted out and Christ forgetting intentionally our sins. The law being fulfilled by the remnant. That's the point. But then we also see that this remnant, they possess not only the commandments, but they also have the prophets. What does it mean to fulfill the prophets? Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10, verse 7. Revelation 10 verse 7 says, And in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. So what message were the prophets given to share that have not yet been fulfilled? He has a question. Um, when when He forgives our sins, when He judges us, we'll still retain the knowledge of good and evil, right? Yes. Then how will we not retain the knowledge of sin? If we retain one, wouldn't we retain the other? Okay, let me just ask you this question. Does God know the difference between good and evil? Does He remember His sins? That's exactly right. So is it possible to know the difference between good and evil? and still have not, doesn't, and do not have actual remembrance of sin? I believe so. I believe so. Yeah. But let's get back to what we were discussing just a minute ago. <clears throat> the servants, the prophets, have been given a special message, and according to, uh, well, we may look at it later, other verses in the Bible, it has been hid from ages and generations. But now, at the conclusion of the great controversy, it will be finished, and it will be finished by the remnant, fulfillment of the prophets, and that is the mystery of God. And we've talked about this at length in this class. Mystery of God, simply put, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the final fruition of God's plan of salvation. So, the remnant church, the remnant of her seed has a very special mission. And it doesn't end right there. Notice the name. They are called the remnant of her seed. When have you, what is the first time that that description has been given before? Genesis chapter 3. Let's look there real quick. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. What has this seed been prophesied to accomplish? Revelation 3, or Genesis 3, verse 15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is the first messianic prophecy. Jesus fulfilled this prophecy, yes. He was a seed, and he did deal the crushing blow to Satan. But there's another verse I like to look at in Romans chapter 16. Romans 16. Romans chapter 16 and verse 20. <clears throat> Romans 16, verse 20, Paul writes, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. The remnant of her seed has a final mission. They will also continue to deal that crushing blow, bruise the head of the serpent. And if you want to study this further, there are uh, illustrations in the sanctuary service, the idea of a fit man who takes the Azazel goat into the wilderness. It connects with the 144,000. It's all in there. The final generation, the faithful people of God, they have an active role in dealing the final, uh, the final judgment, if you will, in a way, or a final reveal with final clarity the issues in the great controversy. That is why God takes so seriously the last generation, because a lot hinges on what happens. Okay, so. I've taken a little more time than I had expected, but um, let's transition now into chapter 13. And let me give you a little disclaimer before we get into it. As you're turning back to Revelation 13, I must tell you that I had a very difficult time figuring out just exactly where to go with Revelation 13. Because there is so much in here, and it is directly relevant to our day, and because of that, I know there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of ideas out there. And it is not my intention to deal with every false idea. Um, in fact, I don't plan on dealing with them at all. But this is what I like to do. Uh, I'll, I'll explain it this way. I'm going to make two assumptions in this class right now. This is not an evangelistic series, so I feel that it perhaps is okay to do this, okay? The first beast, I'm assuming you know who he is. It is the papal power, papacy. The second beast, I'll also assume you know who it is. It's the United States of America. With those two assumptions, it'll save us a lot of time. And there are plenty of resources out there uh, that clearly and sufficiently prove these two uh, suppositions. So with that in mind, I'm going to... Do something with this class that you probably don't get a chance to see or hear in uh, many evangelistic crusades, okay? So, what we're going to do today, we are going to try to take a look at the big picture of the beast. The big picture of the beast. We're, we're probably going to have to split this class into two weeks. So, Revelation 13, it takes that much time. But this particular class period, we may not deal with a lot of nitty-gritties, but we will look at a big picture. And hopefully it will bring some cohesiveness to ideas that you have heard before, things that you understand, and fit it all into the puzzle. Okay? So just a quick summary of Revelation 13. We see two beasts. A beast that rises up out of the sea. It is the papal power. It's a religio-political power. And then we see a second beast rise up out of the earth. And... It has two lamb-like horns. It looks like a docile creature, but then it speaks like a dragon. And the second beast creates an image to the beast and gives it life and commands people to worship it. And then there is a mark of the beast issued, and if anyone does not have the mark of the beast, they should be killed. Sort of a really quick summary of um, Revelation 13 but I want to look at the big picture. So let's, let's think about this. Revelation can be essentially divided in half. 22 chapters. So between chapters 11 and 12, that's basically the, the half of the chapter, but or half of the book. So chapter 13 is near the middle of the book here. If you look at a survey of the whole book of Revelation, from Revelation 1 to Revelation 14, actually Revelation 13, We see a conflict between God, his people, and Satan and his people. It's a conflict. It goes back and forth. Sometimes God's church is faithful. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes Satan is winning. Sometimes he's not. It goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It's this really serious contention. It seems like nobody's nobody's winning. And Revelation chapter 13 and 14, right afterwards, God wins. If you look from chapter 14 until the end of the chapter, Satan has no more, no more upper hand. After chapter 14, God wins. And the rest of the book of Revelation from chapter 14 on is just a detail of what happens when God wins. Seven last plagues, you know, the Sea of Glass, the Millennium, the New Jerusalem, Second Coming, destruction of Babylon, all of these things. So Revelation chapter 13, you can think of it as the final stand. It is the final stage of Satan's plan in this past however many thousand years, 6,000 years or so of the great controversy. Revelation chapter 13 is the final push, the final fruition of everything that Satan had been planning and scheming for. And so what we need to do now, or we don't need to do this, but what I want to do I want to take a step back, okay? We're going to review a few things. I'm going to assume that you've been through Daniel and, you know, the prophecies there. So let's just review a few things. In Daniel chapter 2, this is where we all got started. That is the initial prophecy that got the ball rolling on these apocalyptic-type prophecies. Daniel 2, we see an image. And in that image, we see descriptions of Various kingdoms, head of gold is Babylon, chest and arms of silver, meat of Persia, belly and thighs of brass, Greece. legs of iron is Rome, and then the feet of iron and clay, and then the stone comes. So, see if uh, you pass this pop quiz. In Daniel chapter 2, which portion of the image received the most attention, most description? The legs and the feet, predominantly the feet. So what does the feet of iron and clay represent? It is a mingling of churchcraft and statecraft. Four BC, Bible commentary, volume four, page one, one, six, eight, paragraph eight. The mingling of churchcraft and statecraft is represented by the iron and clay. I hope that settles it. We've studied this before, so I don't want to spend too much time. And so when you look at the image, it goes through the, same, you know, the, the, the typical prophecy that we'll see over and over again. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Papal Rome in a sense. But it doesn't name the kingdom. It just says church and state. Gives a lot of information and it moves on. Now before we move on to Daniel chapter 7, if you were to, you know, this image is, I'm assuming, in the, image, in the form of a human being or some creature that has heads and arms and legs, you know. So it looks like a person. If you were to name this image, what would you name the image? Let me give you this illustration. If, I, if there was a human body standing up here, but I covered his face, would you be able to identify who he is? But if I had a person up here and all you saw was his face, would you be able to tell who he is? Which part of a person's anatomy gives that person his identity? It is his pinky... His appendix, maybe his big toe. No, it's his head because that's where the brain is. The Bible actually says in Proverbs 23, I believe, let me check. Proverbs 23, verse 7. As he thinketh in his heart, in his mind, so is he. A person's mind determines who he is. And so this, this image has a head of gold, This image, if I were to name him, I would call him Babylon. And this is very important because it links right into the book of Revelation because very soon that name Babylon is going to be thrown all over. And you need to have a clear understanding where it came from. So Daniel chapter 2, the prophecy goes all the way down to the feet, focuses on the feet. And then Daniel chapter 7, the prophecy repeats. But then it enlarges Meaning it repeats the same process, but then it emphasizes the area that requires more attention. So in Daniel chapter 7, we see four beasts, line with eagle's wings, bear with three ribs in its mouth, leopard with forehead, uh, four wings like eagles, and a dreadful beast. Where is, and then the dreadful beast has a little horn that comes out of it. Where does the most description go to? Which beast? That was sort of a trick question. It's the dreadful beast because the little horn is attached to the dreadful beast. So the description to the little horn still really applies to that beast. Let's actually turn to uh, Daniel chapter 7 real quick. I'm going to try to get through this. Daniel chapter 7. A few things I like to look at. Daniel chapter 7. Okay, so... We concluded, Daniel 2, history goes down to the legs of iron, feet of iron and clay, it is emphasized. Beast of Revelation chapter 7, or Daniel chapter 7, dreadful beast with a little horn is emphasized. I want to look at verse 12, um, actually verse 11 and 12 of Daniel 7, forgive me Ken, I'm going to read this so you're not going to get your exercise today. But um, this is what it says. I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So the dreadful beast, we see that he's destroyed. But verse 12, as concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season. So there are four beasts. But the first three beasts are described as their dominion was taken away, but yet their lives were prolonged. And it's interesting that it says that. We'll see, that w- we'll see why that is in Revelation chapter 13. But I want to look at a few words here. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 5. Daniel 7 verse 5. And another... Behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side and had three ribs in its mouth and between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. So the bear, what is there for him to devour in the the vision? Prior to the bear, there's only a lion. So he devours the lion. And then we see here in verse 7, after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrible, dreadful, and strong exceedingly, and had great iron teeth, and it devoured and brake in pieces. So what did he devour? The beasts that were previously in the vision. Now, let's look real quick in Revelation chapter 13. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. It says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his seat, and great authority. So in Revelation chapter 13, we see an amalgamated beast with all of the characteristics of the beast of Daniel chapter 7. That is, that is what it means. Their dominion was prolonged, or their dominion was taken, but their lives were prolonged. Assuming that we already know who the, this beast is, the papal power, you will see, if you study the history, you will see that the Babylon's dominion was taken away, but the influence of Babylonian thought and culture and religion remained. Medo-Persia was taken away, but the influence of its culture and, and its way of thinking remained. And more than the rest, Greece was a nation, but its power was taken away, but its influence remained. And Rome simply assimilated all of these principles into its own system. And then paganism, which originated really in Babylon, if you think of the Tower of Babel as the beginning, brought it all together. And the papacy is in fact... A amalgamation of everything that has come before. And that's why the image of Daniel 2 is really one image. It's one entity with different phases through which Satan works. So, Babylon is the system by which Satan has used to um, battle against God's people from the beginning. And... Couple, uh, a couple other minor things then. You know, when we look at Revelation... The last paragraph, Babylon in the apocaly- apocalyptic term refers to the power that Satan has used throughout history to war against God's people. And in the end, in the end times, it is more specific who it is. It's more specific at the end times. Alright, so... And then we go to Revelation, seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets. We repeat essentially the same history, but we only focus on the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay. And here we are in Revelation chapter 13, the final fruition of Satan's plans. All right. All right. We don't have much time, but um, let me touch on a few other broad subject items here, big picture items. And then we will close. So Revelation chapter 13 and verse, let's see, verse 4. Okay, verse 4. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? What does it mean when individuals say such a thing about the beast? Let's look in Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Exodus 15, verse 11. This is right after the crossing of the Red Sea. Some name this chapter the Song of Moses, which has special significance. It says here, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Revelation chapter 13, verse 4. The beasts... Is receiving the song of Moses sung to himself. And when you look in Revelation chapter 15, the redeemed is going to sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. So the beast here, and it says they worship the dragon because they gave power to the beast. And this beast power represents the dragon on earth. And he claims what belongs to God. And we can look at the word blasphemy. Um, You can study that out, the word blasphemy in the book of Revelation and also in the Bible, what that represents. And also, we see in uh, uh, verse 5 of chapter 13 that this beast was given power to rule for 42 months. 42 months is equivalent to time, times, and half a times, also equivalent of 1260 days, or three and a half years. And at the end of the three and a half years, we see that the beast receives a mortal wound. But the mortal wound is healed. So this beast power comes to earth, receives accolades deserves, that only God deserves. He has a ministry of three and a half years at the end of which he receives a mortal wound and then he's resurrected. Now, what does that sound like? It sounds sure a lot like the life of Christ. It's a counterfeit ministry of Jesus. But then there's a second beast. I know I'm flying through this. Again, this is big picture stuff, okay? In Revelation chapter 13 and verse 13, we see the second beast arise out of the earth. And this second beast, is said, verse 12 actually, let's start there. He exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. The second beast causes fire to come down from heaven And we also discussed in Revelation chapter 12 that the woman going into the wilderness for three and a half years was similar to the training that Elijah had prior to the full fruition of his ministry. So here we see a false prophet claiming to be in the position of Elijah in relation to God. And also this second beast, it prepares the way as a forerunner in a way. Before the resurrection of the first beast. Telling people to worship that beast. Looks like the ministry of John the Baptist. A prophet, a forerunner. And also, these two powers put together. In verse 15, it says, And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. If you have a marginal reading, the word for life is the word for breath. They even try to mimic God's creative power. Why? Because because in Revelation 14, they know that there's going to be a final message. The final test is going to be around the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is rooted in the fact that God is creator. Whoever is creator received the worship on Sabbath. And so Satan here, he has this final triune plan. The dragon gives the beast his power, great authority, his seat. He's standing in the place of God the Father. The first beast, he stands and says, I am the representative of the dragon. Who is like unto the beast? He has a ministry for three and a half years. He dies. He's resurrected. There's a, there's a third person here, a prophet that calls fire down from heaven and says, I am speaking for the Most High. Worship God because we have worship us in essence, because we have the power to create life or to give breath. You see the counterfeit at the end of time? It is the final fruition of Satan's plan. What is Satan's plan? Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14, verse 12 through 14. It says here, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Since the very beginning of Satan's fall, This has been Satan's ultimate desire, to be God. And so all throughout these prophecies, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, we didn't even talk about Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 11, Daniel chapter 12, all throughout the book of Revelation, the great controversy, Satan is trying to say, I deserve to be God. And in Revelation chapter 13, he gets his wish. God steps back and says, all right, Let's see what you've got. And Satan pulls together a false union between the dragon, the beast, and the lamb-like beast. And he says, worship us. Worship us. And he uses force. And that's, next week we'll get into it. The mark of the beast, the image of the beast, all of these issues at the end of time. That is why it's so critical for us to understand. People say, oh, it's just, it's just... Oh, I guess I'm making another assumption here. But um, Mark of the Beast, legislation to keep Sunday. Sunday legislation is the Mark of the Beast. We'll talk about it more next week. But some people say it's just a day. It's not just a day. It is 6,000 years worth of celestial war. This is where it all boils down to. Who is deserving to be God? God or Satan? That's the issue. So we should not let ourselves become so myopic to just think it just has to do with what I want, what's convenient for me, but I have to work on, I have to work on Sabbath because I have to feed my family. Look, we're taking too narrow of a view. This is why we need to re- recognize that the prophecies give us practical application if we really want to look deep into it. So Revelation chapter 13, there's more. Obviously, we barely got into it but that's some of the big picture stuff. So hopefully what we've done today was able to give you a a framework and some puzzle pieces to help you see how things relate to each other because that's how the human mind works. We need to see connections. Okay? So uh, I don't want to run over like I've done every week. So let's bow our head for prayer and uh, move on to the next service. Father, we thank you for the warnings and the blessings and the encouragement you've given to us in your word. Help us to be prepared for the final conflict and may we stand on the right side. And may you, do, may you fulfill your promise with us soon that we may see Jesus very soon. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.